0: Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we continue our series through uh, this marvelous uh, and magisterial epistle. Uh, And we've entitled this series, The Gospel of God, taken from Romans chapter uh, 1. If you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look specifically this morning at Romans 8, verses 7 through 8. Of course, we have been in uh, this section for a few weeks now. Uh, and I will explain in uh, momentarily uh, why we are going to drill down into verses 7 and 8 uh, this morning. But to give us some context, I want us to read uh, verses 1 through uh, 11, verses 1 through 11. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Would you pray with me? Our loving and merciful Heavenly Father, we read in Your Word that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We read in your word that the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We read in your word that the mind of the spirit is life and peace, but the mind set on the flesh is death. Oh, Lord, would you help us to make better sense of these things, that we would look to Christ alone for our salvation. O oh Lord, illumine our hearts and our minds, even as your word is read and preached, in this hour, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What is mankind's biggest problem? What is mankind's biggest problem? It's an important question, isn't it? It's a fundamental one. It's a fundamental one, and the answer, you shouldn't be surprised to hear, is not one that people, people tend to agree upon. The answer is not one that people tend to agree upon, especially in our highly secular culture. Indeed, if presented to a hundred people on the street, one might get a hundred different answers to this question. What is mankind's biggest problem? I think it's safe to say that most would respond by saying that generally humanity's biggest problem is external outside of us, and not internal at all. It's outside of us and not inside. For example, many these days would assert that mankind's biggest problem is, yes, you guessed it, climate change. That's mankind's biggest problem. Others would point to dangerous viruses or perhaps to nuclear armament. Still, others would answer that humanity's biggest problem is injustice and inequality. We hear a lot about that these days. Some might even mention Christianity or other religions, along with Christianity, as mankind's biggest problem. If we could just loose ourselves in these oppressive religions, surely there would be those who would point to a specific politician, Or, world leader, as what ultimately ails the world in which we live. Now, these are only a few of the answers that would be offered, and usually dealing with some dimension of human justice, equality, or earthly survival. But, dear ones, God's Word provides us with a very different answer than the ones that tend to be given. It gives a different answer to this question. Indeed, as problematic as these issues are in the world, none of them are mankind's ultimate problem. No, God's Word teaches clearly and unequivocally that mankind's biggest problem is total depravity. Total depravity, that is, the total corruption of human nature By sin and, by consequence, the moral inability to make ourselves right with God, to be acceptable to God, and to remove ourselves from underneath God's holy wrath and just judgment. Dear ones, humanity's biggest problem is not inflation or political corruption, or the proliferation of fentanyl, or the spread of COVID-19. It's total depravity. We're not going to see that on the headlines of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Mankind's biggest problem, total depravity. But that's what it is. It's indwelling sin. It's humanity's Solidarity with fallen Adam and the fact that we are all born into this world, marred and corrupted by the disease of sin in every part of our human constitution. Our souls, our minds, our hearts, our affections, our desires, even our bodies. Every part, the whole man is poisoned by sin. And dear ones, why is this so important for us to understand? Why is this so important for us to understand? Some have uh, said in the past that uh, it's a terrible thing to talk about the human condition like this. Uh, We shouldn't talk about sin. Uh, A famous minister in our own day with millions of, of followers and readers and listeners, Joel Osteen says it's not his calling to talk about sin. That's just not his calling. He has a different calling. Talk about other things, but not about sin, or we've heard of others who have stood up and walked out of, of high, highly um, uh, uh, notable uh, podcast interviews and who have said, "I'm not no longer going to stand for this," and walking out because they say that to talk about sin is hurtful to self-esteem and to mankind 's problem of. Uh, of 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 understanding themselves as as low and and uh, and struggling therapeutically. Why is this so important for us to talk about to understand? Why does Paul emphasize the doctrine of sin and total depravity in the book of Romans and elsewhere in his epistles? Why is Paul talking about that which so few want to consider today from the pulpits of our lands? Why is the doctrine of the sinful depravity of mankind featured so prominently throughout God's word? It's a fair question, right? Well, the answer is because mankind will never seek a proper cure if he doesn't first understand the truth and severity of the disease. Mankind will never seek a proper or the right cure unless he understands, unless he recognizes and acknowledges the severity of the disease. Because it's not until we fully come to terms with our biggest problem that we will fully embrace God's amazing and necessary solution. Again, it's not until we understand the gravity of the bad news that we will receive and rejoice in the glory of the good news. Paul's letter to the Romans is written to disciple the church in a right and true knowledge of his natural fallen condition and to point them to the only hope of salvation, that is, the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the Old Story. I remember uh, being in a Twin Lakes fellowship and my mentor, Douglas Kelly, uh, was preaching uh, God's word to us. And at one point, he, it was like he was just enraptured with his message and speaking to all these preachers in front of him. And he just kept saying over and over, preach the blood, preach the blood, preach the blood. I'll never forget this. Why was he saying this? Because so many are preaching something else which actually does not cure anything. It's the blood of Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ in which our lasting hope dwells. While the messaging of the world constantly tells us that deep down within we are all essentially good and that we all essentially deserve better than we have right now, and that our biggest problems are outside of us, God's word presents the inescapable truth that the biggest problem of mankind is actually in us. It's human depravity and the sin and the death and the judgment that ensue. Mike Horton, in his systematic theology, he writes this, quote, the inner self is not the innocent spark of divinity or island of purity, but is the fountain from which every act of violence, deceit, immorality, and idolatry flows out through the body and into the world, End quote. Now then, you'll remember that over the last two Lord's Days, we have unpacked verses 4 through 11 in Romans 8, And in these verses, we've noticed the stark contrast that Paul makes between those who are walking according to the flesh and those who are walking according to the Spirit. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh and those who are setting their minds on the things of the Spirit. And and here the apostle is is not describing, once again, weak and strong Christians. No, he is contrasting those who are non-Christians, still in their sin, And those who are born-again Christians who are forgiven of their sins and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Paul tells the believers in Rome in verse 9. Look there with me in verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If or since the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And so we learned last week that the the direction or orientation of the true Christian's life is a spiritual one. It's a spiritual one. It's not a fleshly or earthly one. It's a spiritual one indwelt and guided by the Spirit of God and thus focused outwardly upon Christ. When we are filled with the Spirit, we are looking at and keeping our eyes fixed on the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. The direction or orientation of the non-Christian's life, however, is fleshly. That is, focused inwardly on his or her own works and outwardly upon the allurements of the world, And he is under the captivity and dominion of sin. And we learn this uh, through many messages in Romans 6 and 7. And Paul describes the mind that is set on the flesh as what? Hostile to God. Unsubmissive to God's law. And indeed, unable to submit to God's law and incapable of pleasing God. In other words... He or she is totally depraved. Notice again verses 7 and 8 with me. Paul's description of the mind that is set on the flesh. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, at enmity with God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot It not only will not submit, but it cannot submit. An important point. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, the reason why I am drilling down into verses 7 and 8 this morning are because some questions naturally arise as it concerns some of these statements that are being made by the Apostle Paul. Questions like these, quote, If mankind, in his sinful and depraved condition, is unable to submit to God's law and unable to please God, then why does God still find fault? If he cannot do it, why still find fault? Why does God still condemn the sinner if he's incapable of fulfilling God's requirements? If he's unable to submit to God's law and is morally Impotent? How can God require something that is impossible for sinful mankind to accomplish? These are important questions that we will consider this morning. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, there are two simple points that I will seek to make uh, that I believe the Apostle Paul is making. The, the biggest problem for mankind is total depravity. That's the first point. The biggest problem for mankind, total depravity. And then secondly, the only lasting hope for mankind, the gospel. The only lasting hope for mankind, the gospel. The biggest problem for mankind, total depravity. And, and, and so uh, to uh, make it abundantly clear to everyone who is here uh, this morning, Everyone, everyone who is born into this world is born with sin, is born with original sin. We are all leveled. The playing field before God is leveled. Whether you are a king or a peasant, whether you are a billionaire or a beggar on the street, you are in the same natural spiritual condition, namely a sinner and totally depraved. Now we want to ask, what does that mean this morning? When we think of depravity, we often think of the worst expressions of human depravity, and we don't think of ourselves. We think of the other person or someone in history. We think of figures like Emperor Nero or or Queen uh, Mary Tudor or Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin uh, or Charles Manson or these kinds of figures. We say, oh, well, they are the ones that are the really bad ones. They are totally depraved. But we are not. But God's Word teaches that every person is totally depraved and fallen. But it wasn't like that at the beginning, at creation. The Bible teaches that God created mankind on the sixth day of creation, and He created them male and female. Male and female, He created them, and He created them in His own image. He created them with his image stamped upon their soul. He stamped his image upon Adam and Eve's soul. What does that mean? It means that they had God's righteousness, the original righteousness with which they were made, original righteousness, Genesis one twenty six. Yes, in his original pre-fallen condition, Mankind possessed an inherent righteousness, which consequently led him to walk in perfect, sinless harmony with God. They were truly spiritual beings. They were truly spiritual, without sin, created to walk in harmony with God, with the righteousness of God filling them, and with the law of God written upon their hearts. In this perfect condition, Adam and Eve possess something that presently we here this morning do not, namely a sinless nature, and thus the possibility of perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience in the garden. However, when they gave into temptation and sinned against God in the garden, they entered into a new state of nature, a fallen condition. In other words, when they rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit, they lost their original righteousness, and the image of God within them became marred. It became shattered, still there, but marred and shattered, and they lost With all of this, the possibility of perfect obedience. God gave them a nature and a righteousness in order to obey and to walk with him forever. But they sinned and that was lost. In fact, as the federal representative of all of mankind, Adam lost all of these things not only for himself, but for everyone subsequently born naturally into this world. Look with me at Romans 5 quickly, Romans chapter 5, as we see the repetitive nature of Paul making this point over and over and over again, that there is death in and through Adam and there is life in Jesus Christ, which we will look at in a few minutes. Look at chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through what? One man. And death through sin, and so death spread to who? All men, because all sinned. That is, when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. That's what that means. This is not speaking of the consequence or or the um, the symptoms that come from a sinful nature. This is talking about we all sinned in Adam because Adam represented us. It's like a president making a, uh, or, a, or a, a Congress making a declaration of war, and when they say we're going to war, they're making that declaration for everyone. We're all in it. You can say, well, I'm not. Well, yes, you are. People say, well, that's not my president. Well, yes, it is. If you're an American, that's your president. People who who represent others, make decisions for them. And God, in this covenantal relationship, makes Adam the federal representative of all of humanity. And so when he falls and he sins, we fall and we sin. Romans 5.15, For many died through, what? One man's trespass. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all Men And so the only possibility mankind now has is the possibility to sin. There is no longer what Adam had, which was the possibility to continue in perfect personal and perpetual obedience or give in to this. We don't have that option anymore because we lost original righteousness. We lost the ability to do that because we are in Adam. And now we only have the possibility in our natural selves of sinning. By nature, therefore, we are totally depraved. It's mankind's biggest problem. We are enemies of God, the Bible teaches in Romans 5. We are children of wrath, the Bible teaches in Ephesians 2.3. And while elaborating on the spiritual depravity of mankind... Paul states in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, if you want to look there with me, Romans three, ten through 12, that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, both Jew and Gentile. Together they have become worthless, No one does good, and in case you missed it, not even one. The Bible is not a collection of moral maxims to push you along life's path, to to make you somewhat acceptable to God so that you can say something like this when someone asks you if you are sure you're going to heaven. You say, well, I hope so. I've lived a pretty good life. We do not see, receive divine absolutions for our good intentions or for the good works that we do along life's way. No, we are totally depraved. Our need is much bigger. Notice what Paul says about mankind's nature in this statement in Romans 3. First of all, that he is not righteous. Again, he's lost original righteousness in Adam's fall. Second, he says mankind does not understand. He doesn't understand. In other words, his mind is darkened in sin. Paul brings us out in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, speaking of the futility of the mind and the darkness of the understanding and corruption through deceitful desires. Third, due to mankind's deprived mind, depraved mind and will, no one seeks for God. No one in their natural selves seeks for God. Listen to what Mike Horton says in his systematic theology on this point. He says, quote, this is not simply hyperbole that no one seeks for God. He puts, even when we pretend to be seeking God, that is, as unbelievers, we are in fact running from the God who is actually there. If the the self-help sections of the average bookstore are any indication, we are like Paul's Athenian audience in every way very religious, Acts 17. And then he goes on to say, but God is not worshiped, he is used. Spirituality, no less than atheism, suppresses the specificity of the God revealed in Scripture. End quote. And so do you see, dear ones, that those who, who appear to be seeking God but are doing so on their own terms and according to their own categories or something they've pieced together from the Internet or from their own hearts are actually not seeking God at all. They're seeking an idol of their own making. It's a different religion. And so this verse contradicts the theological foundations of a so-called seeker church movement, which believes that man in his unregenerate state has the ability to seek after God. On the contrary, man is dead in his sin. In in his natural self, all he is able to do is to rebel against God. God. Man does not have a spiritual head cold. No, when Paul paints a portrait of mankind's spiritual condition, he paints a portrait of death. Ephesians 2.1, and you were, he says to the Ephesian Christians, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's the picture that we should have. Uh, for some reason in our day, there is this fascination with death, uh, which has uh, brought to the surface all these zombie movies. Now, we had our cheesy zombie movies from the 70s, for sure. We had those. But today, there's this fascination of death, of, of the sort of living dead that, that come out of their graves and come and haunt people and, and cause all kinds of havoc. It's all very dark and very strange. But that really is a picture of the spiritual condition of mankind apart from the life-giving spirit, apart from life in Christ. It's the living dead. No understanding, a heart of rebellion towards God, a wanting to live autonomously, and an inability even to please God. Fourthly, it says here that man has turned aside you may ask, turn aside to what? Answer, mankind has turned aside to his own ways, believing his own ways to be better than God's. Indeed, Isaiah 53 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Fifth, no one does good, not even one, Paul says in Romans 3. Uh, the word good here is employed to mean unmixed good. Unmixed good, that is, a good that is unadulterated and pure, a good uh, that meets God's requirements, his perfect standards for both outward actions and inward motivations and desires. In a word, mankind in his fallen condition is utterly depraved and corrupt in his mind, will, and affections. This year, when we went to get the Christmas decorations out of the the the, the under the house, uh, first problem: the Christmas decorations went under the house and not somewhere else. Uh, we've been doing it for years; we've gotten away with it, I guess. But many of our Christmas decorations uh, had that mildewy smell—a very strong one—and it was very disappointing. <laughs> but One thing we realize is that several of our Christmas decorations were ruined. They were ruined. We tried to figure out some remedy of fixing that. There's no way to fix it. They're absolutely ruined. And so this is the human condition. It is ruined, and we cannot fix ourselves through our law-keeping, through our good works, because even our best works are fallen, mixed with sin. And so we are born in sin. We are born spiritually dead, an enemy of God and a child of wrath. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul was laying out in Romans 1, 18 through 320, showing both Jew and Gentile, showing all of us that the biggest problem of mankind is total depravity and separation from God. Isn't this what Paul is setting forth in Romans chapter 8 in his description of the one whose mind is set on the flesh, that they are hostile to God, unsubmissive to God and His law, and morally incapable of keeping God's law and pleasing Him. You know the verse in Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, the heart is desperately sick. This further confirms, does it not, that the law of God is not a means of salvation, but a means of exposing our indwelling sin and need for a Savior. In the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, written in 1563, there's a wonderful succession of questions and answers that bring out the truth from Romans uh, chapters 1 through 8. Uh, question three asks from where do you know your sins and misery answer from the law of God? That's how we know our sins and misery. That's what Paul says is the purpose of the law, not as a means of salvation that we would attempt to obey it, that we would work hard to obey it, and then God might accept us. No, the law is a means to expose our sin like a mirror. And so that's how we know our sins and our misery from the law of God. Question four, what does the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary form in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. How many of us have done that for even half a second ever? How many of us have loved our neighbor as ourselves perfectly ever for even half a second? Well, we haven't. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, Jesus said. Question five, can you keep all of this perfectly? Answer, no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's my inclination as a fallen human being. Sixthly, did God then create man so wicked and perverse? Answer, no, on the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that, now listen, he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, And live with Him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify Him. Next question, an obvious one. From where then did man's depraved nature come? Answer, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Question eight, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Answer, yes. Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Sound familiar? The law of the Spirit has given us new life in Christ. And then question nine, the one that truly speaks. To our section this morning, is God then not unjust by requiring in his law what man cannot do? Answer, no. For God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all of his descendants of these gifts. Question 10, will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally as he has declared. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, before we get to the good news, it's important to... Uh, understand that depravity doesn't mean that man doesn't still possess a, a moral compass or a conscience, and that people express this depravity in different ways. There are all different ways it's expressed, and and everyone thankfully doesn't express total depravity or human depravity in the worst types of ways, like Hitler and Mussolini and, and, and Stalin and Mary Tudor and others who get into positions of power and, 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 and use that power for corrupt purposes and, and for murder and such, or those who seek to, to rape and, and all of these things. Thankfully, everyone doesn't display their depravity in those ways. Nor does it mean that mankind will not at times show elements of virtue and goodness knowing that this virtue or goodness never rises to the standard of perfection, meeting God's requirements. Every good work is tinged with sin. So we need to remember these things. The Bible teaches these distinctions. Now, beloved, if all of these things about mankind are true and we are incapable of keeping God's law and in the flesh we cannot please God, we must ask, what hope is there? for wretched, rebel sinners like you and like me. What hope is there? Well, this brings us from the very bad news to the very good news of the gospel. The announcement that a Savior has come. A Savior was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago to set us free. From this bondage to sin, to provide us with that forgiveness and righteousness that are necessary for our salvation, and to restore us to God with a new nature in Christ. And here we come to the only lasting hope for mankind the gospel. Not long before he died, James Montgomery Boyce, the former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He wrote several hymns. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he began to work with his chief musician on several hymns. We sing some of them uh, in this congregation. Uh, But in one of those hymns, he wrote this I once was rebellious, corrupted by sin, pursuing the devil's dark path, oblivious, dead to the state I was in, an object of God's dreadful wrath. But God, who is rich in compassion and love, not leaving my soul to the grave, has given me life, born again from above, by God's sovereign grace, I've been saved. A beautiful, glorious summary of all that Paul is teaching us in Romans chapter 8. The first thing he teaches us, of course, is that the first Adam sinned and we sinned in him. But the good news is that the second Adam fulfilled all righteousness and united to him. We are counted as righteous in Christ. We are declared righteous in God's presence and thus accepted into the beloved. Look with me at Romans chapter five, at Romans five, 15 through 17. Romans 5:15 through17 He writes, "But the free gift that is, salvation is not something we earn, it's a gift. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought, what? Condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, there is justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that is Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! In Adam, we all die, but in Christ, we are made alive and we receive the gift of righteousness, thereby fulfilling the requirements, the perfect requirements of God Therefore, making God both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so salvation, Paul has been saying over and over and over again, is not earned through the means of the law, through our attempts to obey it. In other words, as Christian believers, we do not wake up in the morning seeing the law as the means of, by which we get our acceptance with God. We do not wake up in the morning thinking, I hope God will still love me today, and I hope my performance of his law is up to par so that he will not cast me out. Oh no, Christians wake up in the morning knowing that Christ has fulfilled all righteousness, that Christ has paid the penalty of our debt on the cross, and that we are in Him, no longer dead in our sin, but now alive in Him through the Spirit. Amen? Alive in Him through the life-giving Spirit that has united us to Him, has given us new life in Him. Salvation is not earned through the means of the law, through our attempts to obey it. Salvation is received as a free gift from God through Jesus Christ, who is the perfect law keeper and the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, met the perfect requirements of God's law and then bore the penalty of our sins on the wretched cross. Look at Romans 8, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Think about this statement. God created us with original righteousness, with the law of God written on our hearts, and we were able to obey it in paradise before the fall. But now, because sin has entered the world, Our flesh is weak. We are incapable of obeying the law as we ought. We always fall short of the glory of God. We never measure up. And so it says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as a sacrifice. God condemned your sin and my sin in the flesh of Jesus on the cross. Why? Look there. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Dear ones, this gospel, this good news is the only hope For depraved sinners who are culpable in the sin to which we have been held captive. God created us with perfect righteousness, but we walked away from him in rebellion. But he has pursued us with his grace and in his son. Is this not a great salvation? Does this not give us a lasting hope? Oh, our works are not what we put our hope in. We put our hope in Christ and in His work of salvation. Through union with Christ, we are set free from the dominion and bondage of sin. We are indwelt by the Spirit. We are made alive in Christ. We are justified through faith in Christ's blood and righteousness. We are restored to a right standing with God in heaven. And we are set free in the Spirit in order that we might glorify Him and please Him the very purpose for which we were created. Again, Horton writes, Only when God seized us and liberates our captivity are we truly free to be the human beings that we are. Only in Christ. Doesn't this make sense of Paul's words in verse 6? For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. And peace, Dear one, that's what you possess in Christ, life and peace. And so set your minds on the things of the Spirit. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Keep your eyes on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so when he returns, you will dwell with him in glory forever. Don't live according to the ways of The flesh, according to the ways of the world, live according to the ways of the Spirit, according to the ways of Christ. Put on Christ, put off sin in the flesh, die to sin, live to Christ. This is the way of the Christian who has been set free in Christ. What is mankind's biggest biggest problem? It's total depravity and all the consequences of it. But the Bible teaches us that this dire condition is not without a remedy. And the remedy, the hope, the Savior is Jesus Christ and the glorious gospel of grace. May we rest in that hope this morning. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you, O God, that what the law could not do, you did by sending your Son We thank you for the gospel, the good news. There's so much bad news about the human condition, but Lord, this good news, it abounds in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, if there are any here today, any here this morning or listening online who do not know you, who have never repented and turned from their sin and received Christ as their Lord and Savior, that even this morning that you would work in their hearts that they might cry out to you for forgiveness and grace that they might bow down to you as their savior and king and that you would be glorified and we pray these things in